Camouflage. <laughs> <laughs> is that good for you, though? I'll find out in a minute. One, two, three. Okay, thanks Leslie. All right, so um, it's uh, been given to me to welcome Kate Vigors, who's going to uh, give us an excerpt of her PhD, which she's recently uh, delivered at the University of Leeds. But something that Kate has that I think is unique to PhD students is that she's also a historical interpreter, and I know some of you know that, but I'm quite interested to see how that blends and mixes with her academic research and the excerpt that she specially prepared for us this afternoon. Um, and this is the title. So over to Kate. Well, as we say in England, and now for something completely different. <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk to you about the post-war representations of the women of SOEF section. Um, before I begin, there are so many different types of ways of memorialising these women. We've got books, films, museums, physical memorials, which I will talk about, plays, historical interpretation, which I do, and of course there are buildings like the Special Forces Club, so there are many, many ways in which these women are remembered, and I've only got time to touch on a few of them. Now, in the years following the Second World War, numerous books and films were produced about the SOE, and these became a means by which the public remembered and to some extent memorialised the agents' lives and their constructions. Within months of the end of the Second World War, stories of love, heroism, and previously unimagined tortures were being told and retold, and the fine line between fact and fiction became very blurred. Thus, the public's understanding of a secret agent's life, mission, actions, and fate may differ very greatly from the reality. There are several reasons for this, including, as I'm sure a lot of you have found out, the lack of official SOE files available in the public domain. There are several reasons for this, um, the destruction of many of the files and a fire, and also the reluctance of some agents to speak publicly about their wartime experiences. This is contrasted with the eagerness of some agents to speak, especially as I'm going to deal with Odette Churchill and George Miller. It was easy for the public to confuse uh, reality with fiction. Now, the truth is hard to ascertain. Head of F section, Colonel Morris Buckmaster, maintained that records were not kept meticulously during wartime because, quote, we were fighting an immediate battle and not building up a story for posterity and because of a very present security risk. The problem is compounded by the fact there was a fire in the SOE offices and apparently 85% of all files were destroyed. They were also weeded. This means women would sit in an office and uh, choose which ones to keep and chuck the rest into a fire or into the bin. So the SOEF section historian has a very uh, big problem in that they're only looking at a small amount of the records and some of them are still under the Official Secrets Act or locked away in the National Archives. Now, because of this lack of immediate official information, the public's interest in the Second World War and SOE had to be sated in other ways. Much of the public's perceived knowledge about the subject area comes from fictional and non-fictional literature that was written in the immediate post-war period. I'm not sure if these films made it to the USA, but in the UK, we've got things like The Cockleshell Heroes, The Dam Busters, and uh, Douglas Bader's story in Reach for the Sky. These were popular with adults and children alike. The heroes of these stories became the heroes of the nation and a trend developed in popular literature and cinema. In the main, the subjects of these wartime adventures are men and they achieved heroic status by recounting acts of bravery or courage. 
The stories made them individuals that the public could admire and allowed the people of Britain to become part of the victory in Europe and defeat of the Nazis, even those who had not been on active service or were too young to be on active service. These stories allowed the reader to revere the war's heroes and to help boost the country's confidence by reiterating that the war had been worthwhile. They also provided some form of escapism for the reader by taking them away from their tough post-war existence and allowing them to share the pride of something extraordinary. The stories effectively gave the reader and cinema goer an escape from the dullness and greyness that was post-war Britain. Now, in wartime, the role of women had differed very greatly from that of men. The majority of women who joined the armed forces, so the WAF, the ATS, the Land Army, and uh, the Wrens, had stayed on the home front, not all of them, and I'm not going to go into great detail in this. Members of the women's uniformed services and those who worked on the home front contributed greatly to the war effort, and although some of them were heroines in their own right, they were not on a par with the male um, war hero and the war story. The women involved in these occupations, for example, had not experienced hand-to-hand -hand combat or the full horrors of the battlefield, and there was no female equivalent to the war hero within contemporary thought and writing. This all changed with the introduction of the SOE stories, in which, in contrast to most war stories, some of the heroes were heroines and they were women. The female characters in this case were not there to provide a love interest or a motherly figure, as women were typically presented, but they were there as secret agents, in this case infiltrated into occupied France to fight the enemy. The experience of the women, to some extent, matched that experience uh, that men had, and they too could be considered war heroes. The intense interest in SOE seems to have been brought about by the awarding of several decorations to agents, including the George Cross to three female agents, two of them posthumously, and the subsequent media publicity in various newspapers. The public seemed to desire more exciting and thrilling stories about SOE, and the national press recorded the lives of particular members of the SOE, presenting them as heroes or even celebrities. There's one a fantastic series of articles came out in the Daily Herald in 1950 called Commando Girls. It had headlines uh, which were there to try and inspire people. She led 3,500 guerrillas and Peggy blows up a German convoy. <laughs> the articles don't mention SOE, but they do mention the Fanny, the first aid nursing yeomanry. It's these sort of series that uh, probably brought all of this um, stories and the female agents of the SOE to the fore during the 1950s. The agents themselves also fueled interest in SOE and began to publish their experiences. In 1945, SOE agent George Miller wrote the first personal account of SOE's work called Maquis. It was an instant success which, despite paper shortages, was printed into 70,000 hardback volumes by Heinemann, receiving much public and critical acclaim. In fact, General de Gaulle himself was impressed by the candid nature of the book, saying, this is the truth about the Maquis. He predicted correctly that Maquis is something that would become untruer year by year for decades ahead. Now, Maquis is an exciting and realistic account of life in the French Resistance, as well as a frank personal account. If this was anything to go by, SOE's activities would be well recorded and the truth would be widely acknowledged. And this was also true of the second book to come out. Moondrop to Gascony was written by Anne-Marie Walters in 1946. This was only two years after she'd been infiltrated into enemy-occupied France. 
Walters uh, parachuted in on the 4th of January 1944 to work as a courier to the Wheelwright circuit, and she did not attempt to make her work seem glamorous, nor did she oversell her achievements as an agent. Her writing style is plain and sincere, and if you've got the stomach to read anything else about SOE, I do recommend this one. Uh, she even got a prize uh, for this. Now, Moondrop to Gascony has all the elements of a great war story. Near misses, gunfights, torture and betrayal. And it's told with sincerity and clarity. It is clear that the author is consciously attempting to regale her experiences in a way that will thrill and amuse the reader, while at the same time remaining relatively true to the actual events. She did not overplay her own experiences, and as such, she doesn't construct herself as a heroine or resort to melodrama. Now, unfortunately, despite all its good features, Moondrop to Gascony is rarely regarded as a work of literary or historical longevity. A reason for this, uh, my own opinion, of course, is that the book was published immediately after the war, which was probably too early for most people to be wanting to read about it or to be able to absorb it. In the immediate post-war years, the public was inundated with stories relating to the war and becoming aware of events that had happened. They were shocked by images of concentration camps, conditions in prisoner of war camps, battles, deaths and injuries. In addition to uh, coming to terms with continued rationing, repatriation of servicemen, rebuilding homes and families. The public's interest in war stories truly began in 1949 when a new generation sought to be regaled with tales and discover new heroes in stories such as the Dam Busters. Perhaps if Moondrop to Gascony had been written only a couple of years later, it would have received the acclaim that I feel it deserved. So, the next book to be published about a female SOE agent seemed to have instant public appeal. The heroine was Odette Churchill. The book was entitled Odette, and it was published in 1949 as a partly fictionalised version of the tale of a woman who left behind three young children to become an SOE agent. Odette's story had attracted the attention of War Office publicist Gerard Tickell, who began to write a book about Odette's experiences. The book has contributed greatly to the confusion and fictions that surround Odette's experiences and was, was responsible for creating a construction of her that is really quite difficult to challenge. Look at the images behind me. Odette's story contains a heady mix of populist subjects, a glamorous heroine, Nazis, capture, betrayal, torture, and concentration camps. It made it immediately appeal to journalists, novelists, scholars, and the public alike, as they were subjects that uh, capture the popular imagination. These elements are so prevalent and integral to the story that they're visually realized on these two front covers and many more editions of Odette. The covers belie what is inside the book. Uh, you can see for yourselves there, Gestapo officers standing over a woman. She's shying away in fear or staring at him in the other case, but uh, they do look pretty scary guys that you're not going to want to argue with. Uh, these front covers, I believe, make this more appealing to the public who are seeking a particular kind of story. Now, Odette first came to the public's attention when she received her George Cross in August 1946. The citation was printed in several newspapers of the day, and the interest was fueled rather than sated by the public in 1949 by the printing of her story, Odette. It seemed to have instant public appeal, and an era when there was a popular movement to establish gallant, pure war heroines. Uh, do you all know the story of Odette? Do I need to go into it? The, the woman left behind three children, uh, went into enemy-occupied France. She was captured, uh, repeatedly tortured, and kept in horrendous conditions in Ravensbrück concentration camp. 
The story written by Tickell is hagiographic and it's fictionalised, but Odette was still uh, marketed as a biography and it still is today. The book became a bestseller, selling over 500,000 copies and had four impressions printed within a year. The fact that the book was made into a successful film in 1950 ensured that Odette Churchill became a household name. The book received rave reviews. Um, Compton Mackenzie wrote, Nobody who claims to be living rather than existing in this crucial time of ours can afford not to read this book. Uh, in contrast, there are scholars, uh, one is Mark Seaman, who says that the book reads like a novel and is imbued with hagiographic emphasis that is on occasion all but overwhelming. Odette assisted with writing the book by relaying her memories to the author. Colonel Morris Buckmaster also contributed his thoughts and memories, although it became clear later on in his own writings that he had a tendency to mix fantasy with reality and was prone to getting dates and places wrong. He even mixed agents together sometimes. Uh, but he was there to add authenticity and gravitas to the story and presumably ensure that Odette was satisfied with whatever was written about her, albeit the truth or a fabricated version. So, Odette was turned into a film in 1950 with Anna Neagle in the starring role. So we'll move on to film as a type of memorial. Um, I've stopped in 1950, very short-sighted of me. We've got another 61 years of book writing. Um, there are biographies, autobiographies, novels. Uh, anything you care to talk about has been written about the women of SOE. And do ask me afterwards if you want to know any more about the actual books. Time permits me uh, not to talk about it much longer. So films. Films are an entirely different aspect of memorialising. They're multifunctional in their purpose. Amongst other things, they serve to entertain, enlighten, question and educate. Films come in various forms. There are epics, documentaries, biopics, historical dramas, costume dramas, science fiction, war and horror, to name but a few. And war stories have always explored the variety of human experiences in wartime, and filmmakers have adopted a variety of genres through which to explore that experience, action, adventure, drama, romance, and comedy. As such, film reacts to uh, reflect contemporary society and is therefore a platform for filmmakers and directors to comment on and react to current events or past events in such a way as will appeal, engage, and lighten their audiences. Film serves as a place of memory, in fact I call it a celluloid memorial within my PhD. In terms of the women of SOEF section, several of the films act as a place of memory where deeds and events around certain agents' lives are depicted through the means of the biopic such as Odette and Carve Her Name with Pride. They have real heroines at their centre. In both of these films, the agents are portrayed in such a way that they inevitably become heroic icons. Scenes of interrogation, torture and concentration camps depict them as heroes. They're heroic and they're infallible and uh, it's very difficult to question what really happens. Issues of accuracy and historical integrity do arise, but these films brought the names of Odette and Violette into the public limelight and they act as a conduit by which the public remember them. Interestingly, this morning we were talking about an episode somebody remembered as being real. It sounds like it actually might have come out of the film. So this is because film can be a place of memory. Uh, this is a quote from Penny Summerfield. Insofar as it engages the public in a collective recollection that revivifies or creates a meaningful link between a past event and the identity of the social group in the present, a film brings the public together in their commemoration of events, and as an audience member, an individual may then link their lives with the past. 
as the film may provoke an empathetic reaction. As such, the audience is prompted to think, what would I have done? How would I have reacted uh, to the situations that they're seeing in front of them on the screen? The relationship of films to memory is very complex. And again, Pen Pen uh, Penny Summerfield, get my words out, states that a helpful starting point is offered by the French historian Henri Rousseau. He suggests that one may think of historical films as vectors of memory that carry interpretations of the national past to their audiences. Both Odette and Carve Her Name with Pride can be considered as vectors of memory in that they're interpretations of a national past. Whilst both women worked in France and they both had dual nationality, they are considered to be British wartime heroines. And the film served to reiterate that to the public and to provide a visual stimulus that they could call to mind when remembering and commemorating these women. Even the titles of the films have become such a part of British commemoration of the SOE that a recent memorial I'm going to talk about in a moment on the Albert Dock in London uh, states, in the pages of history, their names are carved with pride. To me, this highlights the fact that films have saturated the public memory to such an extent that they cannot or will not distinguish the film from the reality, which in turn has become part of public memory. Films, by utilising imagery, language, empathy and emotion, create a different type of memorial, one with which the public can engage and relate to on a natural and unaffected level, compared with how they would interact with physical memorials, which I'll come to in a moment. So, the majority of British films were made in the late 1940s and early 1950s with female protagonists. They were about reinstating women's place in the home. So these are films, normal war films, not SOE war films. Uh, they show women's return to monogamy and to her normal life, away from the thingy-me-bob that you all showed us last night. In French cinema, women uh, were portrayed very differently. They were performed as gas or evil bitches or as weak victims. British films remained relatively naturalistic in their styles, but the French seemed to adopt the film noir. In Britain, war films, um, sorry, films about the war grew in number, while topics such as the war or the resistance were rarely touched on in France. And if they were, they were pre presented in a very heroic manner. Um, there's a film called uh, The Battle of the Rail. It's a memorial to the activities of the French resistance, and it shows everybody being um, involved in the resistance. Uh, no collaborators here. So, the film, as I say, implied that everybody was in the French resistance. Many French films were not made until the 1960s, whereas in Britain, and I think in the USA, uh, films were dealing with the OSS, the SOE, and the resistance immediately after the war. We've got Cloak and Dagger in 1945, uh, School for Danger, or Now It Can Be Told, which was featured in Jenny's film showed on Wednesday, 13 Rue Madeleine in 1947, and Against the Wind in 1948. These are all in the UK and America. In France, you've only got the Battle of Rail in 1946. The next film is 1969. You've got the Army of the Shadows and the Sorrow and the Pity uh, coming out in 69 and Lancôme Lucienne coming out in 1974. So we've got a good 20 or 30 year gap. French, uh, the French public cinema, at a glance, the representation of resistance activity and the collaboration during the occupation is what's dealt with in these films, and this uh, really touched a nerve with the French. The Sorrow and the Pity was the first post-war film to challenge the myths of the French resistance, 
and examined the role of collaborators in depth and caused a political furore. Lancome Lucienne aroused such controversy that the director spent the next decade in self-imposed exile in the USA. He was essentially chased out of his own country for daring to suggest that there was collaboration. So a very different story. You've got all these heroes in uh, America and Britain and a um, very different story in France. So back to Britain, uh, the work of the SOE agents were portrayed in 1950 with Odette and 1958 with Carve Her Name with Pride. Resistance films with female protagonists uh, such as Lucy O'Brack in 97, Sophie Scholl, The Final Days in 2005, and Black Book in 2007 were not even made or released on the continent until the late 20th and early 21st centuries. So the British chose to celebrate these women who'd worked with the resistance. Everyone else was a bit uh, slower off the mark, really. Each country, of course, had its own past to deal with. Uh, France had to cope with life after the occupation, hunt out and punish collaborators, assist dis uh, displaced persons who came out of the concentration camp and rebuild its economy. Britain had to deal with issues of repatriation, <coughs> but also with the refeminizing of women and reinstating the domestic norm whereby men worked and women stayed at home. That's a whole thesis on its own. <laughs> so. Away from the academia slightly, let's talk about the films about the women. They fall broadly into three categories. You've got biopics, documentaries, and fictitious films with claims to historical accuracy. The biopic uh, presents difficulties in transcribing a literary work to the screen and adds narrative and fictitious content for dramatic purpose. For example, Carve Her Name with Pride contains detailed descriptions of events that are not based on any documentary evidence. To some scholars, this type of artistic license in a biography is warranted. In fact, who can write a biography without inventing a life? A biographer, like a writer of fiction, imposes a pattern upon events, invents a protagonist, and discovers a pattern of his or her life. But in doing so, the biographer, in my opinion, is distorting the truth and creating fictional scenarios in a protagonist who may differ very, very greatly from the original. It engages, I quote, a cunning mixture of diverse visual elements, fact, near fact, displaced fact, and invention, to produce a rough assemblage of something that formerly had its basis in hard fact. This may make way for a more entertaining and imaginative filmic representation of a character and their experiences, but this is risky when the public are unable to distinguish fact from fiction, or indeed assuming that they're seeing a film that is based on fact, when actually it's based on fiction. The truth became very distorted and in, it uh, veered away from the facts and a myth therefore became created. Likewise in the earlier film Odette, another image of Odette there. <coughs> so moving on to documentary film. School for Danger, have I really? Or Now It Can Be Told, it talks about two SOE agents. I need to move on to female agents, we'll miss documentary but there's the poster. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure some of you have seen it. Uh, female agents, most of you seen that? Yeah, yeah okay, here goes. Uh, it's supposed to be based on Lisa Bazak, and the implication of the opening scene is that it's a film based on fact. It's misleading. Um, it, it's not based on fact in any way, shape, or form. The only similarity I could find, it's supposed to be based on Lisa Bazak. She had a brother in the field. Uh, the character of Louise de Fontaine has a brother in the field. That's sort of where it ends, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, 
A brilliant uh, film critic in the UK wrote this. The real-life story of Lisa Bazak and her Second World War special ops comrades is thrilling, impressive stuff. Sadly, that is not this story. Instead, we have a fanciful Babes at War action pick in which Winston Churchill rounds up a crack team of fabulously good-looking young women to rescue D-Day from disaster <laughs> while paying special attention to their hair and makeup. <laughs> Director John Paul Salome declared that the hardest part was making it as realistic as possible while providing plenty of glamour, an endeavour in which he is only 50% successful. <laughs> There's the film. I'm going to move on to physical memorials. I knew this paper was too long. I got overexcited. <laughs> Let's move on to physical memorials, come away from film. I've been privileged to go to several concentration camps as part of my studies, and I was on an immersive program at the Imperial War Museum two years ago where I studied memorialization of the Holocaust, so I adapted this for my own studies. Um, the... Memorials I'd like to talk about are going to be Ravensbrück, Natzweiler, Strutoff, and I'm going to mention the Violet Zabo Memorial, sorry, the SOE Memorial on the South Bank. Um, let's start with Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück is home to sculptures and plaques. So these commemorate former inmates as well as interpreting what is left of the buildings to ensure that the past of the site is not forgotten. Now, sculpture is a form of memorial that's most commonly used, um, interestingly though, not for the women of F section. Sculpture, to me, enables people to engage and interact with a physical uh, presentation, so no other explanation of the event is needed. Uh, the picture behind me is called Muttergruppe. Um, you can just see what happened in the camp in that sculpture, to me. It's said to represent the three stages of mourning, uh, but to me that's everything that happened in Ravensbrück. I feel I don't need to explain any more. Uh, these are cadavers, which were a, a, a touring sort of exhibition when I got there. Again, they're sexless, faceless, uh, what's left of a human being. Again, um, what I found very interesting is I have all the different colored triangles on them to represent the different um, statuses of the prisoners within the camp. And the burdened woman, sorry to rush through, but I want you to see them. Uh, the burdened woman overlooks a lake. In that lake, there are the ashes of the thousands of women who were killed at Ravensbrook. It's the creepiest place I've ever been to. Uh, but look at the, the face of the woman carrying the body. She's looking out across the lake, and if you follow her eye line, um, Juliet may reiterate this, she's looking straight into the village of Furstenberg. The only way of getting to the camp is walking through Furstenberg to get there. No way they didn't know, in my opinion. Now, the plaque to the women of SOE looks like this. It's uh, placed on something called the Wall of Nations. Uh, it has 20-foot letters all around the wall of the different nationalities who are incarcerated within the camp. Uh, Britain is unique that it has a plaque as well dedicated to the four women. That's right, four women who were executed there, Cecily the four, of course, being the other. Now, plaques are very different. Plaques sort of make me feel like I'm in a church. There's very little information on this plaque. There's the dates that they were executed, and the inscription just reads, in memory of members of the Special Operations Executive, SOEF section, whose lives were taken here. The simplicity of the memorial does not actively bias the observer's reaction one way or another. Uh, you really need to take information with you to this plaque to understand what it's telling you. These women were taken away and shot. Nobody knew what had happened to them. The other one, Cecily Lefour, was taken away to a gas chamber. If you don't go armed with that information, it's difficult to interpret the plaque. And I'm going to say the same about the one at Natzweiler. Um, the buildings uh, and memorials, of course, at Ravensbrück are site-specific. So 
you're standing facing the plaque behind you is a rose garden full of the ashes of the dead. You can't help but be affected by the fact you're standing in a concentration camp. And I imagine this plaque would affect you differently from those of you who saw the Fanny Memorial in London, uh, which is on the side of a church and very moving. But you're not standing in a concentration camp when you're looking at it. So, skirting through, uh, moving on to Natzweiler. As you know, this was a camp mainly for male political prisoners. But in July of 1944, the four women we're all very familiar with, Vera Lee, Diane Rowden, Andre Borel, and Sonia Olczynski, were executed by means of a lethal injection and immediately cremated. The site is enormous, and it has lots and lots of memorials, but there are only two to the women uh, who were executed. And that's because they're a tiny part of the camp's history. They were there one minute, gone the next. Uh, this is the memorial. As you go in, this memorial's on your right-hand side. The crematorium ovens are in front of you, and the, um, the, the prison cells, the rooms where the women were injected, are off to your left. I have to thank Rita for my tour of Natsweiler. I had her book with me and followed it every step of the way, right the way down to the crematorium. So again, what do you learn from this memorial? It, it doesn't say anything. It tells you that Four female parachutists were executed here. It doesn't tell you the horror that those women went through, the way they were executed, the fact that one of them may possibly have still been alive when she was thrown into a crematorium. The actual ovens are a more evocative memorial at, at Natsweiler. Um, they're there in front of you. And in fact, there's a, when I went, there was a pair of shoes placed in them. And uh, that's far more evocative. Again, you need to get absolutely armed with information to understand this particular memorial. There's a beautiful memorial I don't have time to talk about, also in France. Oh, sorry, there's the museum at Natsweiler. Uh, that gives you a lot more information about the women, um, and museum's another type of memorial that we could talk about all day. Um, maybe you need to see the museum before you go down to the plaque and you'll understand more what's happening. Uh, I don't know the way they intend you to walk through the camp. The Van Ancey Memorial, uh, to my mind, is the most effective memorial to the women of SOEF section. To talk you through it very quickly, it's, Valence, uh, it's located in Valencey. It's called the Spirit of Partnership. The white represents uh, the shining spirit of resistance, and the black represents night. The disc in the middle is set to represent the full moon, and there's also um, lights to represent the, um, the lights that were used on the landing strips. It's a fantastic memorial. It summarizes everything. And around the edge, uh, there's a roll of honor to those who were executed. It only gives you their names. It doesn't give you their decorations or anything else. So it's a very equal memorial, and uh, everyone is given equal respect. There's one memorial that doesn't do that. Uh, did anybody visit the SOE memorial when they were in London last year, the, the bust of Violette Zabo? There she is. It's a lovely memorial, it's, it's a bust, uh, and it's very well done by the artist Karen Newman, who I've spoken to on occasion about this. It's based on photographs and descriptions of her, and it seems from a distance to be an individual memorial to Violette, rather than a collective memorial. But get closer to it, it's actually conceived as a national memorial, not just to SOEF section even. It's to the Norwegian agents, uh, who worked at Telemark, it's to the French resistance, to the Maki, and to F section. It was unveiled in late 2009 on the embankment, and uh, there was a, a very interesting opening ceremony. One of the plaques to the side of the plinth is just to Violette, and this makes the whole memorial seem incompatible with the notion of equal remembrance. It's somewhat justified by the fact we've got her image here, but it does need some sort of explanation. It also implies that she deserves to be singled out as remarkable, and while she did sacrifice her life and do brave work in the field, 
38 other women did that as well, and, uh, and hundreds of men, and they have no individual image here. I struggle with this memorial. Um, this notion is echoed by Pearl Witherington, who said at interview, I'm only a teeny weeny dot in all of this. It's only the important things that people hear, but I didn't help the whole of France. There were 104 victims who were killed during the war, and they showed that at the memorial at Valenciennes. It just shows you. She was aware that there were many agents, all of whom worked and fought, and some of whom suffered and died during the war. She felt that all loss should be given equal recognition, and she achieved that at Valenciennes. She died before this memorial was unveiled, so I never got a chance to ask her how she felt about it. But knowing Pearl, I don't think she'd have minced her words. The memorial of such disparate groups, such as the French Resistance, SOE, and Telemark Raid, on this memorial was a cause of many debates throughout the months leading up to its unveiling. The Special Forces Club declined to endorse the project on the grounds that it was wrong to use the image of one agent to acknowledge the work of so many. Uh, the plaque at the front that you're looking at there reads, This monument is in honour of all the courageous SOE agents, those who did survive and those who did not survive their perilous missions. Their services were beyond the call of duty. In the pages of history, their names are carved with pride. So that final line is the title of a film and a book about Violette, and it brings her to the fore of the observer's mind, even when that's the bit that's supposed to be to SOEF section. It also possibly elicits uh, emotional responses that may only relate to the memorial, may not only relate to the memorial, sorry, but to the books and the films, thus encouraging a reaction that is not founded on the memorial itself, but rather than what it implies. So this memorial throws Violette into the limelight because it uses her image and wording that evoke memories of her. In doing so, um, it reiterates the argument that individual agents are remembered above and beyond others who served with the SOE. It has been argued that Violette symbolises the others. Tanya Zabo uh, quite often says when she's talking that Violette represents all the other agents. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to see through that when you, you have this bust here. I feel the Valenciennes Memorial is far more successful. So, in the conclusion to a rather confusing paper covering all aspects of memorialisation, the influence of films such as Odette and Carve Her Name with Pride is huge, yet the public remain largely unaware that many of the events portrayed in the films are fabricated, unsubstantiated, or just not true. They've developed a popular public perception that informed the SOE mythology and perceived wisdom for generations to come. Films, uh, films with female SOEF section protagonists changed the role of women in war films during the 1950s from subsidiary roles to heroines who not only saw active war service but who suffered hitherto unimagined hardships which the public found enthralling and captivating. The films pandered to and in some cases unleashed the public passion for the Second World War and the world of cloak and dagger. They didn't care whether what they were seeing on the screen was embellished or even fantasy. It made a wonderful story and created heroines for post-war Britain that could be revered and admired and who became icons over, of triumph over evil. Another way the women agents have been remembered is through memorials. The majority of SOE memorials dedicated to or including the women of SOEF section are relatively traditional in their forms and exclusive in the information that they offer. Only those with prior knowledge of the person or the situation being commemorated are likely to get anything from them. The exception is the SOE memorial on the Albert Embankment, which is the bust of Violette Zabo. The image of Zabo um, supports the argument that she dominates the common perception not only of SOEF section, but perhaps SOE as a whole. This memorial reiterates a common misconception about SOE and uh, perpetuates the surrounding fictions. So, 
where do we take it from here? How do we continue memorialising SOE? I wrote this at midnight, so bear with me. Uh, last night's performance of the Camouflage Project highlights a different challenge, that of bringing these stories to the stage in a coherent and contemporary style. By utilising recorded interviews, official files and oral archives, this devised production has succeeded in providing a new type of memorial to SOE, one that I hope will be enjoyed for some time to come and by many audiences. The play highlights that it's the secrecy, vulnerability and clandestineness of SOEF section that highlights our interest, heightens our interest. We're not um, necessarily interested in the truth, so I'm not talking about your play now, I'm talking about memorials in general. I think you've done an excellent job of portraying the truth. But people aren't necessarily wanting that. The public fascination with the men, women of SOEF section is mainly because of the fact they are just that. They're women. In some cases, they're mothers, and this is the fact that has gripped the public imagination. Not only them, the press, journalists, and historians for years, and now theatre practitioners too. It is most likely that these women will be a source of public interest and intrigue for many years to come. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you oh, I'm exhausted. Thanks for relating it um, to the camouflage project as well. And in relation to that um, invitation at the end of your presentation, I'd like to ask you to just say briefly how your role as a historic interpreter, um, what space that takes up in this procession of memorials to the SOE women, because I know that you do... Mm. Um, yes, for those of you who don't know, I also uh, portray an SOE agent in a solo performance, which lasts about 20 minutes. Um, that's quite difficult, because I get invited to the weirdest places to perform it, so um, people aren't necessarily expecting it when they get there, so they haven't specifically come. Um, I tend to be... Um, what's the word? I can't remember, it's gone. You're just there. Um, uh, a, a sort of installation, if you like, standing in the middle of a museum at quarter past one, I start talking about SOE and people can listen or they, or they don't. Um, but I consider it to be a really important method of memorialization and for that reason I've worked very, very hard on the authenticity. I've only used eyewitness accounts, um, the archives, interviews, um, materials um, that I, I believe to be true and to give a good depiction. For that reason I didn't choose to be Violette Zabo or Andre Borella, whoever it is, I chose to be a, my piece as a composite, which gives a rounded view. Um, there seems to be a, a conception um, that most of the women were tortured and thrown into concentration camps. In truth, only a third of them were. The Nacht and Nabel was very successful in that. Thirteen women disappeared, but two-thirds of them didn't. And they were very successful, and they did excellent work, and they do tend to get overlooked. So for that reason, I, I reiterate that aspect rather than the, the torture and the concentration camp aspect, which also, as a solo performer, is impossible uh, to do. You can't, yeah. you, unless you walk around on your heels and say you've had your toenails pulled out. Yeah, and it's, that's not suitable. Mm. <laughs> um, and I wondered if you felt, because I know that a lot of us, when we watched female agents in particular, and some <laughs> other, some other um, films about the women, that Charlotte Gray is another example. The motivation is always, oh, my boyfriend, I don't know where he is. I know, I'll join the Sophie and go find him. And we were, you know, and we and, 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 uh, and the many, the women who were still alive when these films came out were very exasperated that that 
seemed to be the only motivation that these filmmakers were interested in, mm -hmm. or you know, coercing people. But um, and I wondered if you felt that there was any connection there between like reaffirming these traditional gender roles and making the motivation for these women something to do with going mm. to find a man. That's a really interesting point. Um, Possibly, but then if you look in the films written in the 1950s, uh, they both kept their true motivations. Odette um, uh, went because she sent her photographs to the wrong place and found herself interviewed and wanted to do her bit. And in Carve Her Name with Pride, Violet Zabo, likewise, well, she, she thinks she's going to an, inter an interview at the Ministry of Pensions, but finds out it's about SOE. And to some extent, she's... Um, uh, my words are just not coming out, it must be the jet lag. Uh, she's trying to sort of justify the fact that her husband's died and she's going to go and make a sacrifice. So it's not until later films, like you say, um, Female Agents and Charlotte Grey particularly, where this romantic element suddenly comes in. There are romantic elements added in to carve her name with pride. There's no evidence for this, um, this new love interest that she finds in Violet Zabo's story. But it's really only in later depictions that this romantic image starts to come in and... Um, I wonder if that reflects the society in which the films were made. I was very disappointed in Charlotte Grey because it was a 20th century, 21st century film that still had very odd 1940s values in it. Um, it, it. It didn't float as a film for me. I did mention this to some of the agents I interviewed, what do you think about? And they just said it's poppycock. If anyone had had such a weak motive, they, they probably wouldn't have been allowed to go into the field. Pearl was engaged and she was reunited with Henri, but that was always going to be the case. Um, and she's the only real love story. I'm sure Juliet may have found some more, but I, I've never found a motivation where they've gone to look for Harry, you got downed in the RAF or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, Rupert Henry Jones, whatever he's called. <laughs> I only watched it recently and it, it riles me, Charlotte Gray, that motive. Because she endangers her entire circuit when you come down to it. She goes off to Gilet or whatever is because she's got news of Peter being uh, found and everybody else in the circuit gets shot in the, in, within minutes because she endangered them. So it's very interesting. It's, uh, I'm bored you all. <laughs> I've got one final one, Kate, which is just about the national past and why. Why is it so important to... Um, research it, to interpret it, to communicate it. There's numerous different iterations of it, some of which we've um, shared with you today. How, how is that that um, it's, a, it's a continuous desire to reiterate and reinterpret it? And you the, the women's history, you mean? Yes, you yeah. choose one way to do it. What drove you to do that? Why, through why? my own work or through my research? What, what, is, what is it that drove you? What, was this, what, was the turn, what, what switch turned on? Charlotte Grey. Charlotte Grey came out. That's what happened to me. Well, I read it first, and um, uh, I just thought, I don't want people to think that the women of SOE were such weak, feeble uh, women with such ridiculous motives. And also, um, Charlotte Grey, I'm sorry if none of you have seen it, but she, she's a very... Uh, in sort of insipid character and she also gets caught up with holocaust issues which to some extent would have happened but no SOE agent would have taken two Jewish boys under their wing and brought even more attention to themselves and that's what really riled me into wanting to find out the real stories um, I've been honored to meet Pearl Witherington and Yvonne Baisden and their stories are so remarkable you don't need to put in any fiction you could make a film of them and it would be amazing. And if I'm honest with you, people probably wouldn't believe it was the truth. And that's what I find intriguing, that people have to make up this stuff 
when there's such strong um, stories out there already. I took that as uh, I took that two ways as well. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, so we we talked about that actually on Wednesday and um, the decoration situation. Um, how yeah, Great. Good. amazing. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you.